I desperately want to serve you this morning, so let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now that you would help us to taste and to see that you are good. And so to that end, open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son, who lives with you, who reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. I imagine that for most of us, it's not the catastrophic headline-grabbing events that challenge our souls the most. Instead, it's the daily disappointments. It's the quiet onslaught of frustrations that can melt like acid our confidence in the goodness of God. Godly desires unfulfilled, best laid plans falling through, faithful prayers unanswered, God-honoring dreams dashed, a friend who moves away, perhaps a promotion that never comes, relationship that never materializes, an illness that returns. Scripture says that hope deferred makes the heart what? Sick. And if it wasn't just, if it was just for those personal disappointments that we had to deal with, that might be bearable. But then what seems to be unbearable at times is when we see all around us people who don't care at all about God. And it seems to be going great with them. The, the ungodly seem to do just fine in a world without God. And perhaps that makes us ask the question, is godliness worth it? Is godliness really worth it in the end? Is there a reward for godliness? For an answer to that question, I invite you, if you haven't turned already, open your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 485. In this psalm, we find a spiritual autobiography of sorts of a godly man named Asaph. And he describes in this psalm his own personal crisis of faith. It's a crisis of faith that actually began with his own sin of envy. His own sin of envy. Even followers of Christ can deal with this green-eyed monster called envy. So when you face temptation to envy, what do you do? We find the answer in Psalm 73. Asaph, in this psalm, he teaches us one big lesson. So if you're a note taker, here's the main point. The antidote to envy is believing that God is good. The antidote 
to envy is believing that God is good. What you need to know this morning, more than anything in all the world, when you go through temptation, you must believe that God is good. And he models for us how to, how to apply the doctrine of God to our temptations. One of my heroes, a guy named Herman Bovink, said, Every attribute of God is precious to believers. We cannot do without any of them. And perhaps more precious than all of the attributes of God is that he is good. He's good. And so the antidote to envy, according to Psalm 73, is to believe that God is good. We're going to tackle Psalm 73 in two parts, two big parts. First, in verses 1 to 15, we're going to consider a common temptation. A common temptation. This isn't just something that Asaph dealt with. It's a common temptation. Envy, temptation to envy, is a common temptation. Verses 1 to 15. And then secondly, we're going to consider in verses 16 to 28, a God-centered solution to envy. A common temptation, verses 1 to 15, and a God-centered solution to envy, verses 16 to 28. And my prayer, my prayer for you is that you and I would taste and see that the Lord is good. That you would understand that more than anything in all the world, he has given you the best gift of all in giving you himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, briefly, what do we know about Asaph? What do we know about Asaph? Well, if you look down in your Bible, it says a psalm of Asaph, right above verse 1. Who is Asaph? Briefly, Asaph we know was from the tribe of Levi. We know that he was basically David's main worship leader, his, his, his choir director, as it were. In 1 Chronicles 16.4, this is what it says about Asaph. Listen, David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And notice this, Asaph was the chief. So Asaph is the chief kind of choir director. And then later on, Asaph is the one who led the worship of God at the dedication of Solomon's temple. We know that from 2 Chronicles 5. And if you look at your Bible, we're going to go through of these next several psalms. If you were to study the next several psalms, Psalm 73 all the way to Psalm 83. They're all a collection of the psalms that Asaph wrote. He wrote 12 total. These are like his greatest hits. If he dropped that greatest hits album, it's Psalm 73 to 83. That's basically what we have here. So let's look at this First 15 verses that Asaph writes for us as he describes this common temptation to envy. Let's begin in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not, like, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. 
Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So notice at the very beginning of the psalm, verse 1, Asaph tells us the main idea. He tells us right at the beginning, he declares the absolute goodness of God. Do you see it? God is good. To Israel, He's good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. In this psalm, Asaph is going to contrast the righteous and the wicked, the believers and non-believers. And he's going to talk about the hearts of both. And so I take that phrase, to those who are pure in heart, as a way to describe believers. The heart of a believer. The heart of the wicked, we know from verse 7, overflows with follies. But the heart of the believer trusts in the Lord and is clean. Verse 13. So even in this temptation, before he describes how he went through this temptation to envy, he, he, he doesn't want you to miss the main idea. That God is good. And he's going to describe this, this episode in his life in verse 2 like someone who almost slipped on ice. He, he almost lost his foothold as it were. And what was the stumbling block for Asaph? Look at verse 3. So don't look at me. Look at your Bible. Verse 3. For, here, you see that little word for. He's giving you the reason. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So let's just define what envious means. What is envy? We use that maybe. We don't know what it is. Kids, if you don't know what the word envy is, let me explain it to you. Envy is related to the word jealousy. Envy is an evil desire that craves an advantage that someone else enjoys. Envy resents another person for having something we don't have. Envy is pain in the sight of others' good fortune. So remember when Rachel, she had no children, and she saw that Leah had children. What are we told? Genesis 30, verse 1, Rachel saw that she bore no children and she envied her sister, Leah. Remember Joseph's brothers? What are we told about Joseph's brothers before they sold him into slavery? Threw him down in a ditch? Genesis 37, verse 11, Joseph's brothers were envious of him. Same verb. Envy is the opposite of love. Love does not envy, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love doesn't get jealous of others. Love seeks to, to do good to others. But that's the opposite of envy. Here's, here's one for you, Proverbs 14, 30. Envy makes the bones rot. It's a spiritual disease, right? 
So one last one. In Mark chapter 15, verse 10, we're told the motivation of the priests to hand Jesus over to be crucified. Mark 15, 10 tells us they did it because of envy. Envy is a disease and it destroys. And so Asaph was envious when he saw the arrogant, the, the, the social wealthy elites of his day. He saw their prosperity. Verse 4, notice he says they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Um, they're not in trouble as others are. They don't, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse 12, that they're wicked, always at ease, increasing in riches. So just let's summarize. This is his description of the wicked. They don't seem to have any trials until they die. They have great physical health. They don't get into any trouble. They're free from common burdens. They're always at ease. Life's easy for them. And they're rich and getting richer. So I tried to put myself in Asaph's shoes. What would be a description of maybe the wicked of our day? Okay, here you go. I thought about the experience of traveling with small children on airplanes. Have you ever had the experience, you board the flight with little ones, you've got tired kids, it's a late flight, they're whining, you're carrying one of them in your arms, he's got an ear infection, you've been delayed in the terminal for hours, finally you get on, you're carrying your carry-on luggage behind you, the plane's super crowded. You're trying to herd your family to the back of the plane, a.k.a. coach, cattle class, whatever you want to call it. You get in your seat. If you're six foot, there's no, rec, there's no leg room. There's poor ventilation. The, the person sitting next to you has already dozed off. They're, in their, they're, they're like leaning over in your personal space. And then who do you have to pass by to get to your seat? The wicked. Regal, fully inclinable chairs. They're drinking from a goblet. They got a leg of mutton. Some of them are sending important emails, looking at you, buying Bitcoin, whatever. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, increasing in riches. I think Asaph, brothers and sisters, has some folks far, far worse, far more dangerous far more wicked than first-class passengers. Notice their character, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, notice, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. He, he's describing how spiritually callous these people are. Their hearts overflow with follies. And we know that Jesus tells us out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks, well, what does he say? What comes out of their mouth? Verse 8, they scoff. They speak with malice. They, they, they threaten oppression. They, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut on the earth. How does that affect the people of God? How, how do the people of God respond when they see the wicked and they hear the wicked? Verse 10, therefore his people, that is God's people, turn back to them and they find no fault in them. I think that's just a way of saying that God's people are intimidated by these powerful folks. How do the wicked respond? Verse 11. And they say, notice this defiance to God. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of the Most High? See, they're scoffing. 
at God. Their lives are going great. Can God really know? God doesn't know and God doesn't care. That's what they're saying. And so Asaph sees all this and he makes a startlingly humble and honest confession. Verse 13. He says this. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Do you see what he's saying? He says, maybe godliness isn't worth it after all. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt that way? Seriously. Asaph thought this, but he kept this to himself. Verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's such a man of integrity. Even when he's tempted to envy, even when he's tempted to doubt, he doesn't publicize his thoughts. He doesn't go online and post them everywhere. He doesn't record a video and put it on YouTube, his half-baked views. He waits until God humbles him, changes his heart, And then he writes his struggles down in this psalm. I'm so thankful he did. And so this is a common temptation. And I want to ask for just a few minutes, I want to ask, what about us? What about us? There are three diagnostic questions that I want to try to, actually I'll just do two this morning. Two diagnostic questions that will help us get at envy in our own lives. Okay? Two. They both begin with C. Number one, comparison. And number two, criticism. Number one, do you struggle with comparing yourselves to others? Do you struggle, Christian, with comparing yourselves with others? Instead of caring for others, do you spend more time comparing yourself with others? Asaph tells us he began to struggle When he began to look at his situation and compare it with others. When you scroll through your social media feed, are you provoked to love and to pray and to serve and to thank God for the blessings in others' lives? Do you compare yourself, your job, your spouse, your longing for a spouse, your kids, Are you tempted to envy? Listen, brothers and sisters, the fires of envy are stoked by the kindling of comparison. Envy doesn't have 20-20 vision. Envy doesn't see everything rightly. You know this. When you see people that you, you pass them and they just look like they have everything together... You don't know their struggles. You don't know what's going on in their lives, really. When we envy others, we don't see their private struggles. Envying someone, especially someone who doesn't know God, is like going around without your glasses on. You're not seeing rightly. 
So beware the danger of comparison. That's the first diagnostic. Second diagnostic. Do you struggle with a critical spirit toward others? Do you struggle with a critical spirit toward others? Criticism, godly criticism, is a good thing. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Godly criticism, given and received, is a good thing. But there's a difference between giving godly criticism and nurturing a critical spirit. If you constantly compare yourself with others and you stoke the flames of envy towards others, the end result is often a critical spirit. Another word for this in the Bible is slander. Flattery is when you say something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. And slander is something that you say behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Listen to this. Slander is the evil twin brother of envy. 1 Peter 2.1 Put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. They go together. So brothers and sisters, listen to me. The fountainhead of frustration in your life is not your circumstances. It may well be your envy that's fueling a critical spirit. Jesus says that envy doesn't come from outside of you. Where does it come from? From your heart. That's what defiles us. Envy that comes out of our hearts defiles us. And if you're guilty of the sin of envy this morning, you need to follow Asaph's example. You need to humbly acknowledge it. Humbly forsake it. Confess it. And cast yourself upon the goodness of God. We face a common temptation, don't we? What do we do about it? What do we do with the envy? How do we fight envy? That's what we're going to turn to now. How do we fight envy? What's the God-centered solution to fight envy? Let's look carefully at verses 16 to 28. In this second part of the psalm, we find a twofold solution, a twofold way of fighting envy. First, we need to contemplate the judgment of God. And second, we need to cherish the goodness of God. How do you fight envy? What's the God-centered solution here? Number one, you fight envy by contemplating the judgment of God, verses 16 to 22. And you fight envy by contemplating, by cherishing, as it were, the goodness of God, 23 down to 28. So let's begin first. Fight envy by contemplating the judgment of God. Verse 16. Notice the change here. Here's the pivot in the whole psalm. So if you're sleeping, wake up. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Notice the most important word in the psalm. Verse 17. First word. Until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. In other words, Asaph says he was wearied 
Envying the wicked, it didn't refresh his soul. It didn't satisfy him. It led him to spiritual exhaustion until he went into the sanctuary of God. I take this to mean that the temple courts. He goes to the place of God's presence in Jerusalem. He goes to the place where the people of God are called to sing and to to pray and to offer sacrifices. He looks beyond this earthly life, as it were, and at the temple courts, he begins to gaze into eternity. That's what wisdom does. Wisdom looks to the end of things and then works backwards and lives accordingly. That's what he does. He looks to the end and lives backwards. What was it? He doesn't tell us. What was it in the temple courts that caused him to discern the end of the wicked? Maybe it was the smell of burnt offerings. Maybe that smell entered his nose and he considered the holiness of God. And the wages of sin is death. Maybe he considered how the wicked have no priest, no one to intercede for them. Christian, listen to me. If you would only soberly contemplate what awaits the ungodly in the end, you would never, ever desire to trade places with them. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Brothers and sisters, apart from repentance, apart from turning from sin and trusting in Christ, what awaits the wicked? Asaph says, ruin, destruction, terrors, forever. Proverbs 24, 19. Do not be envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So after considering this horrifying final destiny of the wicked, it sobers Asaph. And he makes another humble confession. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish. I was ignorant. Notice that last phrase. Verse 22, I was like a beast towards you. In other words, he's admitting Lord, when I was thinking wrongly about this, I was acting, acting beastly. Oh, friend, how do you fight envy? You contemplate the awful judgment of God. Now that brings us to the best part of the whole psalm. We'll spend the next few moments here and we'll be done. You don't want to simply fight envy by looking at the The judgment of God that awaits the wicked. But you also want to cherish the goodness of God. You fight envy, brothers and sisters, by cherishing the goodness of God. Envy blindly focuses on what you don't have. And so faith looks to what you do have. 
namely God. You can say amen. So I'm going I'm to try to persuade you for the next few minutes of how wonderful it is to have God. Number one, because God is good, he gives us his continuous presence. Because God is good, he gives us his continuous presence. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. If you're in Christ this morning, you can say to God, I'm continually with you. And God says to you, I am with you always. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's always with you no matter what you're going through. God is with you in your struggles, in your temptations, in your pain, in your sorrows. He's with you on your wedding day. He's with you if your wedding day never comes. He's with you when, you, when your first child is born. He's with you, with you when you're weeping over a grave. He never leaves you nor forsakes you. But God doesn't just uphold us with his righteous right hand. He doesn't just uphold us with his righteous right hand in our trials. Did you notice that tender, fatherly care right there at the end of verse 23? You hold my right hand. You see that? You hold my right hand. Oh, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this for a minute. I was thinking about this the other day. My baby girl, Emmeline, she's not a baby girl anymore. She's a freshman in high school. But one of the many things I adore about my daughter is that, at least as of last week, she still lets me hold her hand in public. Now, it's a small thing. It's a small thing. But as her dad, I want to give her every reason in all the world to remind her that I love her. To remind her that I care for her. To remind her that I'm there for her. To remind her that I'm by her side. Brothers and sisters, the Lord our God, our Heavenly Father, He not only knows how to rescue His children from trials, but this verse says, He holds your hand through your trials. One commentator put it like this. By faith, we have hold on God. But our grip is often feeble. Our great safety lies in this. That our good God holds us with an omnipotent grip. And he will never let us go. God gives us his continuous presence. Number two, you starting to feel the goodness of God? Number two, because God is good... He gives us his wise counsel. He gives us his wise counsel. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. So in his goodness, God guides us. He leads us along. How does God guide us? How does he lead his people? He says, Asaph says, with your counsel. God guides his people with his own counsel Revealed in his word. How does the book of Psalms begin? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. 
or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the what? The law of the Lord, the Torah. And on God's word, he meditates day and night. Brothers and sisters, if God counsels and leads and guides his people by his word, shouldn't we do the same? Shouldn't we do the same? God is present with us in our trials. He leads us by the hand. He goes through the trials with us. And what is he doing all the way through those trials? He speaks his life-giving, soul-saving, wisdom-producing word into our hearts by his spirit. It's his word. If this morning, if you just, you're not believing that God is good. This is where you're going to find the goodness of God, brothers and sisters. You need to get in this book because it's in the word of God that we learn, that we begin to taste and see the goodness of God. If you want to learn how to do that, how to counsel with the word, I have a, now I'm over equipping classes, so I have a, I'm going to plug it. 9 a.m., 9 a.m., Sunday morning in the chapel, Pastor John and Jeremy are walking through the matters of the heart to help us understand how, do, how does the word of God come to bear in the life of our own hearts and in the lives of others. So join us and let's grow together as a church about how to counsel one another with the word. God gives us wise, count, wise guidance, right? Number three, got two more and we're done. Number three, because God is good, he gives us glorious acceptance. He gives us glorious acceptance. Verse 24, middle of the verse. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Where is God guiding his people? He's guiding his people all the way to glory. He's guiding us all the way to heaven. Your almighty father holds your hand in your trials. And by his word, he counsels you through those trials. He counsels you and guides you all the way to glory. The place where trials come to an end. God gives us his glorious acceptance. Imagine what that will be like. We sang about it earlier. When shall I see my father's face and in his bosom rest? Number four and finally. Because God is good, he gives us himself as an incomparable inheritance. Because God is good, he gives us himself as an incomparable inheritance. These are probably my favorite verses in the whole psalm. I think most, I say that every verse, but whatever. Come to BTI, they're all my favorite verses. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you see what Asaph is saying, beloved? In verse 25, he's saying, 
there's nothing in heaven or on earth that can compare to having God, to knowing God, to being in a relationship with God. Can you say that? Asaph knows that his heart and his flesh will fail. Every single, every single one of us in this room, maybe this is the first time you're hearing Psalm 73 preached. It very well may be the last time. Because your heart and your flesh are going to fail. Asaph knew that. Anything you're envying right now will be gone one day. But nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of this God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh friend, listen to your brother Asaph. Asaph is preaching this sermon, not me. Asaph is saying to you, God is the incomparable inheritance in the eternal portion of his people. Remember at the very beginning, what tribe was Asaph from? He was a Levite. You remember the study we did through the book of Numbers? All the tribes get allotments in the land, right? One tribe didn't. The Levites, Numbers 18.20. The Levites had no portion, no inheritance in the land of Canaan. Why? Levites were to be an example to the rest of the nation. To look to God as their portion and their inheritance. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, just like Asaph, you have God as your inheritance. The everlasting God is your eternal portion. Weary Christian, Almighty God says to you this morning, I am your portion and your inheritance forever. There's a guy named Thomas Brooks, one of those dead guys I love. He said this about this verse. God is a portion that fire cannot burn, floods cannot drown, Thieves cannot steal, enemies cannot capture, soldiers cannot plunder. A man may take away my gold from me, sickness may take away my health from me, death may take away my friends from me and my family from me. Enemies may take away my liberty from me and even my life from me. But none of these, none of these can take away my God from me. He is my good portion forever. Christian, if this God is your God, why would you ever dream of envying someone who doesn't have him? We ought to set example for them. We ought to pity them. We ought to pray for them. We ought to plead with them. The goodness of God, the goodness of this God, is the theological remedy for the sin sickness of envy. So look at verses 27 and 28, and we're done. Asaph calls us to trust, and he calls us to tell. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. Are you trusting in this God this morning? Are you unfaithful towards him? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this psalm is clear about the warning, about the end that awaits 
those who fail to trust God. If you're a follower, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, know this, that there's nothing we've ever done in this world in rebellion against God that will not be finally judged. But out of his great love, this good God, even though we all deserve to stand under his condemnation, because of his great love, he didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He didn't wait for us to love him. He loved us first. In his mercy, he has provided his own son. The eternal son took on flesh and dwelt among us. The one who is perfect in all of his ways came into this world, lived the life we were supposed to live and haven't. And he went to the cross where he bore in his body the death and judgment that we deserve. He took all of our sins, even our sins of envy. And he bore the wrath of God in our place. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hated by hating one another. But when the goodness, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Oh, friend, Jesus Christ is goodness incarnate. If you want to see the goodness of God in this world, look to Jesus Christ. He is goodness incarnate. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Savior of sinners died even for our sins of envy. If you don't know him, if you want to know him, this passage is calling you to bring your sins to Christ and to receive his righteousness in the empty hands of faith. Turn and trust in Christ. Oh, friend, why would you perish? Why would you perish? Trust in Christ. We have a call to trust and we have a call to tell. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. One homework assignment, just ask yourself this afternoon, who in my life do I need to tell about the goodness of God this week? Who can we tell? Is godliness worth it, beloved? Is it worth it in the end? Is there a reward for godliness? Augustine, writing on this verse, said this, The reward of belonging to God is God himself. O Christian, you have no good apart from God, but you have all good in God. No good thing does he withhold from you in Christ. The Lord Jesus has drawn near to you. He's nearer to you than the light by which you see. He's nearer to you than the air by which you breathe. He's nearer to you than you are to yourself. And not a sigh nor a tear ever escapes his notice. 
He's working all things together for your good and for his glory. And surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell one day in the house of the Lord forever. Weary Christian, your flesh and your blood will fail. But your majestically good God is your strength and your portion forevermore.